I'm Naomi Smith and it's been a while since I did a Bunker Daily so welcome, welcome and thank you for joining me. Now regular listeners of our sister show Romaniacs will know that I have what is a keen but perhaps at times mm, unhealthy uh, interest in political data and particularly trying to understand the motivations and current opinions of the average Brit Without question, the referendum on Britain's relationship with the EU had a profound impact on shaping our political identities, both before, during and after the campaign. Subsequently, a new political cleavage emerged and the electorate recalibrated around a new open, closed axis and the traditional left-right axis of old became less significant. And in reaction, some political parties have more successfully repositioned themselves on that front than others. At the end of September, polling showed the largest gap to date between those who think it was wrong to leave the EU and those who think it was right to do so. 50% now think it was wrong and just 39% think it was right, suggesting that regret is real. COVID has, of course, turned all our lives upside down. And as the UK races towards the end of the transition period, I thought it would be interesting to discuss whether 2020 has changed our views on that open-closed axis and explore whether our Brexit identities have softened, hardened or not changed at all. Who better to enlighten us than Paula Surridge, Senior Lecturer in the School of Sociology, Politics and International Studies at the University of Bristol, an expert on all things political identities. Her research focuses on social and political values and their links to socio-demographics and their influence on political behaviour at election time. Paula Surridge, welcome into our virtual bunker. Hello. To kick us off, and before we get on to the current day position, there is one issue that I'm really keen to get your expert view on. Sort of almost straight after the referendum, the the analysis began breaking down the voting behaviour of different groups, and it indicated that younger people and more educated people tend to be more pro-Europe, and older and less well-educated voters tended to be more Eurosceptic. So there was, there was a clear correlation between things like age and education, but but which, if either, is the is the causal factor? Do you think? I'd be a little bit careful with causal language when we're dealing with um, the kinds of survey data that we've got. But if you are if you look at the patterns and um, control for both age and education, you see the same relationship between education and referendum vote um, within different generations. So therefore, what you see when you do some kind of multivariate modeling is that the education effects are stronger than the age effects. So you see the same kind of gradient between low and high qualifications amongst the generation Y and generation X as you do in the baby boomer generation. So for that particular question, the the EU referendum vote, we do see education being a stronger predictor of vote than age is. But what happened, of course, is after the referendum, a lot of the data that we get comes from polling organisations and they offer us um, cross breaks but they don't offer us the chance to look at those two things alongside each other and narratives take hold which are then quite hard to shift later on Um, but on that question of the EU referendum um, the data is very clear that actually education effects are stronger than age effects. 
Well, that's very interesting. And thank you. And I think that'll be uh, nice for our older listeners to hear as well, who who sort of say, oh, stop blaming our generation. It's not our fault. We are, you know, there are lots of pro, pro-Europeans pro uh, amongst us. Don't don't tarnish us all with the same brush. And I suppose it was William Peveridge uh, and his report that concluded in 1942 that ignorance is a social evil and comprehensive education, the remedy. So perhaps if we'd had a bit more of that, we may not have got a leave vote. So Paula, fast forwarding to, to where we are today, are we now more tied to our Brexit identities that, than ever before, so sort of happy to be defined as, as Lever or Remainer, than we are to our, our political party political affiliations? Like, are, are people more likely to say they're a very strong Brexiter than a, a very strong Conservative? So, yes, there's some evidence to suggest that people are more likely to have a strong identity with their Brexit position than with party identities, although party identities had been weakening for some time before the Brexit vote. So I don't think we can necessarily say that because people have become attached to their Brexit position, that has weakened their party identity. Um, I think those are are two processes that have been happening at at the same time. Even within that, though, it's not the case that absolutely everybody has a very strong Brexit identity. It can sometimes feel a little bit like that. Um, But looking at data from the British election survey, um, it's around half of people who will say they have a very strong Brexit identity, either for leave and remain. So that still leaves another half of people who might have a Brexit identity, but don't describe it as a very strong one, or in some cases say they they don't have a Brexit identity at all. But but was it ever thus that 50% 50% of the people claim to have a very strong affiliation to a political party cause. I don't think it ever got as high as 50% with mm. very strong, um, but it would have been quite high um, if we go back to the very early election studies um, in the, the mid-60s and early 70s, for example. So does that mean that, that Brexit could have heightened the average voters' interest in politics in the way that party politics just wasn't doing previously in in more recent years, as you've said, that that decline did start some time ago. There seems to be some evidence um, from the most recent British Social Attitudes um, report that interest in politics has grown a little bit um, in the period since the referendum. And I suppose we shouldn't find that too surprising because we've had a lot of political coverage in that time and also we've had two elections two general elections in that time which themselves tend to increase interest in politics a little bit so we've just had a very kind of political moment I think Mm. which has has helped to to re-engage people with politics to to a certain extent and and two prime ministers and two leaders of the opposition and three leaders of the Liberal Democrats. And yes, it's, it's, it's been a constant uh, drumbeat. So getting back to those those Brexit identities, what, what are the values that seem to underpin each of them? Like which ad- adjectives can usefully uh, be deployed to describe Europhiles and Eurosceptics? Well, in terms of the, the values, the political values that I look at, we see that Brexit identities are most closely connected with a set of values that are around social issues. You mentioned, I think, in your introduction, the open-closed divide, and some people measure it in that way. The particular set of measures that um, I've been using to look at this are usually labelled liberal authoritarian issues, although lots of people dislike the authoritarian label, and I'm still after three years trying to find a better way of labelling the other end of that scale. Sorry. No, sorry, I was just laughing at at your, uh, uh, yeah, needing to find new words because um, I think everything is getting very blurred. And I think it's it's pretty interesting because um, we've 
now got a, a pretty authoritarian government, which of course is led by vote leave campaigners. Yes, and I think people find that that label very problematic, and it ha- obviously has some some very problematic connotations with it. The alternative that people suggest I use quite often is to label it social liberal through to social conservative but I think that itself has some connotations that aren't necessarily wrapped up in this scale and it tends to bring in a whole bunch of kind of moral issues that actually don't predict these things anything like as well as this scale does um, so the the scale that I'm talking about it it measures attitudes to things like law and order um, as much as anything else and one of the really surprising things that came out of the data is that there's a really strong correlation between whether or not somebody is in favour of reintroducing the death penalty and their um, Brexit vote, um, with leavers being more likely to be in favour of reintroducing the death penalty and remainers less likely. Oh, goodness. And and now they're all in charge. Um, <laughs> do, do Brexit identities in England um, easily map onto any other issues? You've obviously, you've mentioned uh, capital punishment as one of them, but but like views on independence for Scotland or being anti-masker or, or you know, is it is it just that you can't draw those conclusions? I think that's where I'd start to say you have to think about values in a slightly more complex way. So, Brexit identities connect very strongly with this liberal authoritarian dimension, but actually other issues connect differently with that or in a kind of combination where some of it draws on the kind of old-fashioned left-right economic divide. And what we see within the electorate are kind of groups that are defined by how they combine those different value positions. So it doesn't it isn't easy just to read off from Brexit identities onto you know whether or not you're pro or anti-mask, for example. Those things don't read off really in a really simplistic way. So of course, there are some groups which are more likely to be both pro-Brexit and anti-mask, but there are also a bunch, lots of voters who were pro-Brexit and are very in favour of masks. Um, so actually, it's much, much more complicated than that. Likewise, with attitudes to independence, one interesting thing I discovered in the data last week that I think speaks to some of this and, and could be further um, unpacked is that across the value space, the the majority of people want to see England governed as it is currently. There's not, it's about 50% in most of the groups, if not higher. But amongst those that want to see change, the type of change they want to see varies according to this um, liberal authoritarian dimension. So those that are more liberal in their attitudes are more likely to favour um, devolution to regions and regional assemblies, whereas those that are more towards the other end of that scale, they're more likely to favour um, an English parliament. So there's a real um, difference there amongst those that want to see change, but at the same time accepting that most people aren't keen on, mm. um, aren't keen on change at all. So let's move on to what these sort of value sets and uh, identities mean when it when it comes to actual elections. Your recent work for the Political Studies Association concludes that Labour struggled to appeal to the more moderate voices on a range of issues, but of course, including Brexit. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, so I think it's important that we recognise that this wasn't just all about Brexit. I think Brexit was obviously a really, really important issue in 
um, the 2019 election, but it wasn't the only issue. And what we find, or what I found when I've looked at these data from a diff- different sets of angles, is that when you start to move away from people who had very strong identities that, that kind of connected them to the Labour Party, when we start to look at people with weaker sorts of identities, whether that's a weaker Brexit identity, a weaker party identity, or what you might call more moderate positions on value scales, then the Labour Party really struggled to pick up votes in that kind of middle ground of people that weren't really strongly connected to them for one reason or another. So, for example, if we look at those who had a weak Remain identity, so they'd supported Remain, but they didn't feel like it was a core part of their identity, they actually, um, in the general election, split almost evenly for the Conservatives and for Labour, with about them getting about a third of that vote each. Um, but, but it's also true if we were to look at more moderate parts on economic issues, so for people who weren't at one end or other of the um, left-right divide, again, the Conservatives were able to win really large proportions of those voters and Labour Labour struggled once it got outside of its of its kind of core identity groups. And you, you touched on this with, with talking about the first-past-the-post system, but wasn't also part of the problem the fact that the Remain slash progressive slash liberal slash open uh, end of the axis was so split across several parties in the way that that closed leave, you know, pro-Brexit identity was concentrated pretty much within the Conservatives after Farage pulled out of, of lots of marginal Conservative seats. Yes, that is the case, that the that the Leave vote was much, much more concentrated um, in Conservative voting. But I think it's worth remembering that the Remain vote, yes, it fractured away from Labour in, in many different directions, but one of those directions was also towards the Conservatives. So it wasn't just a case that the, that the, that the, the Remain vote as a whole fragmented to Remain parties, if we can use mm-hmm. that kind of lazy labelling. Instead, actually, the Conservatives were able to win over a chunk of Remain voters. So they concentrated the Leave vote, but they also won votes amongst Remain voters too. Now, the most hackneyed phrase in British political discourse at the moment seems to be red wall slash blue wall. Um, (laughs) What would you say are the most common myths about voters in the red wall? What does the Westminster bubble perpetuate that you think is just annoyingly wrong? So there are two things I think that annoy me the most. The first is the idea that as soon as we find a geographical label for something, we start talking about all the voters in that area as if they were all the same, which of course is clearly nonsensical. The Conservatives didn't win 100% of the vote um, in the in these areas. So I think there's a real problem there in just kind of labelling all voters as if they were the same in those areas. There's a problem also in the fact that we haven't really understood non-voting in those areas. Um, Part of that is because we haven't got very good data on it yet, and we'll hope to get better data on that later um, this year. So those are two things that that really annoy me in terms of thinking about how voters voted. And then I think for the Conservatives in particular, and for that kind of endless drip, drip, drip of culture war stuff, and we won't even go with whether or not I think culture war is a good phrase. But that kind of constant drip, drip, drip of it is a misunderstanding, actually, of the value space that those voters are sitting in. Um, And they're not kind of desperately keen to fight culture wars on all these issues. Uh, Even those voters that switched from Labour to Conservative, 
in those seats, so that very specific group of voters are not necessarily desperate to have battles about the proms and all sorts of other issues that keep kind of keep kind of popping up. So I think those are the things that really start to to drive me mad with the whole red wall phrase at the moment. <laughs> now, Manchester Professor Rob Ford says that Brexit is now the lens through which voters will probably consider lots of future political issues uh, because these identities are such a powerful force um, and, and also because they're a, they're a shortcut, an easy shortcut for people when trying to understand new issues and, and get to terms with them. Do you agree? And if so, does that mean we're headed for sort of even deeper polarisation as a country? So I think the, the uh, Rob's right that people do use it as an easy shortcut. And in some ways, what we've seen since the referendum is just a label for an existing divide. So these divides between different groups, the patterns according to education and so on, they all existed before the referendum. But the referendum gives a label and people are much can develop an identity much more easily if there's some label to pin it on. Mm. But where I would suggest that we might not see polarization of the kind that people often look to the US and, and, and talk about um, is because I, we've got these cross-cutting divides. And so even within those on the more kind of authoritarian end of, of that dimension, or even amongst the very strong leave identifiers, they are split in terms of their attitudes to economics and attitudes to other issues. And so what we've got are some very distinctive, I think of them as, as fragments of the electorate. And you can bring those fragments together, a bit like a mosaic, I suppose, on particular issues and make a group that is perhaps a majority on a particular issue, but they're not stable. And because they're not stable, it's harder for us to polarise. And um, so the fact that we've got that stronger cross-cutting divide around the left-right economic divide does mean that we're less likely to polarise in the way that we've seen in the US, I think. And those tensions, we can see those tensions in um, current debates around lockdowns, for example. Many of the voters that are towards the authoritarian end of that scale are actually quite pro-lockdown and are less concerned about whether or not we're supporting businesses because they're less likely to be towards the um, right-hand end of the left-right divide. Interesting and, and hopefully I think good news broadly for us um, and, and, and also I think probably speaks to the need for uh, those on the, the more progressive end of politics to actually work together to try and get that majority because it, it sounds like it's going to be very, very difficult otherwise uh, for them to do that. Now, before we go, I've got one sort of final but relatively, I think, probably big question for you, Paula, and that's that pollsters often give responders the chance to say don't know during a, a survey. Um, and then the, the poll results are framed as of those with an opinion, for example, 66% think that chlorinated chicken is bad or, or whatever. And at, at Best of Britain, we do a huge amount of polling. And we've noticed that the number of people answering don't know to certain questions seems to be growing. So I've got, I've got two questions for you. So the first one is sort of, you know, why do you think that is? Is it because people are getting less clear information this year around which they can form a view? So, so that first question is why? And then secondly, what, what can we read into it? Like, why is it important to track don't knows? So don't, I, I'm fascinated by don't knows. Um, anybody that's been on my Twitter feed will see that I regularly pull out bits and bobs about don't knows. In terms of why it might be increasing, 
We know a few things about the types of people who are likely to say don't know to questions. So we do find in in um, survey work more generally on a huge range of issues, female voters are more likely to say don't know than male voters, for example. Quite often we find those with lower education qualifications, but also younger voters. So those two trends do tend to kind of fight against each other a little bit, are also more likely to say don't know to issues, um, especially where they require quite a high level of political engagement or, or knowledge about a particular issue. I'm not quite sure why they might be increasing because no, none of those trends would point in that direction. The only thing I can think of is that perhaps party identities and other identities are both a little bit weaker, but also quite often in conflict with each other. And where you've got not got a very easy position to go to, that might make you less sure of your position and, and more likely to say don't know. Interesting. The don't knows are really important. In the 2017 election, um, we saw really high levels of 2015 Labour voters saying they didn't know how they were going to vote. And one of the main shifts across that campaign, which we know was a, a very dramatic campaign, was that those don't know voters went back to Labour over the course of that campaign. Um, so gradually they'd got they'd, they'd said they don't know all the way through, but when kind of push came to shove in the campaign, they started to return to Labour. What we're seeing at the moment in um, vote intention polling is um, a higher proportion of Conservative voters from 2019 saying they don't know how they would vote if they were asked to vote tomorrow. And that gets masked in the polling when you take the don't knows out. So the latest YouGov poll, if you take the don't knows out, you've got the parties roughly neck and neck. But if you look at the proportions of each party's voters that they're kind of retaining, the Conservatives in that most recent YouGov poll are retaining 68% of their vote compared with Labour retaining 74% of their vote. And that's different to what we were seeing, um, for example, in the prior to the 2017 election um, and even prior to the 2019 election. And one thing, if I can just tell you one interesting thing that I spotted in that is that the don't knows are particularly high in the two regional groups, Midlands and Wales, which YouGov take as a single group, and the north of England, which, of course, to go back to that earlier point, is exactly where that um, red wall is located. And in some previous work, I discovered that many of those voters that switched Labour to Conservative in 2019 still retained a Labour Party identity, even though they'd voted Conservative. So I think those don't knows in those areas are definitely something to watch in terms of voters who, some people have used the phrase, lent their vote to the Conservatives in 2019, might be coming to think, actually, they don't want to do that again in a coming election. That is absolutely fascinating because we're talking about millions of people. If you're taking Wales, West Midlands and the whole of the North, which I think, you know, is obviously a ridiculous phrase, but you've got you've got maybe 15 million plus people within that that those regions so to have a, a significant number of don't knows there is is absolutely fascinating well listen we might not know but but Paula Surridge certainly does so that's the end of the show Paula it was great to have you on thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me and a big thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the show and have a couple of spare minutes, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review on the Apple podcast platform to help other people find the show. That's it for now. And we'll see you again soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. 
The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Thank you.